Okay, now back and next on the tee with me is Champions Tour Pro, Sirius XM PGA Tour radio host and TV analyst, John Cook. John is from Toledo, Ohio, but grew up out in Southern California. He went back and played his college golf at Ohio State, where he was a three-time All-American. He helped them win three consecutive Big Ten titles from 1977 to 1979 and the 1979 National Championship. John won six individual titles while he was there at Ohio State. He also won the Les Bostead Award for the lowest stroke average in the conference each year from 1977 to 79. And he was inducted into the, into the Ohio State Hall of Fame in 1986. John won the U.S. Amateur Championship in 1978 and finished second to Marco Mira in 79. He won several amateur titles, including the California State Am in 75 and the Ohio Amateur in 1978 and 79. And he would later go on to turn pro later in that 79 season. He won his first PGA Tour event in 1981 at the Bing Crosby National Pro-Am by beating Hale Irwin, Bobby Clampett, Ben Crenshaw, and Barney Thompson in a playoff. He would win again in the 1983 season at the Canadian Open. In all, John won 11 times on the PGA Tour, 10 more times out on the Champions Tour, and he has seven top 10 finishes in majors. He was named the 1992 Comeback Player of the Year on the PGA Tour. And in 2013, he was inducted into the Southern California Golf Association's Hall of Fame. And I couldn't be more excited to have him back with me again this week here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Cookie, how are you, my friend? I'm good, Chris. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure to talk to you, my friend. That's a nice intro. I forgot a lot. A lot of that is so long ago, last century, I've forgotten about a lot of that. (laughs) John, I want to start out getting your thoughts on what's going on with this public investment fund and the PGA Tour, whether you call it a, a merger or a partnership. I know you and Craig Can talked about it the other night on your fantastic show, Connected. Folks, be sure to listen. Monday night, 6 p.m. Eastern time on Sirius XM Channel 92. But what did you think when you first heard, hey, there's going to be a press conference between Jay Monahan and, and uh, Yasser Auermeyer on CNBC? What did you think about when you first heard that was going to happen? Well, that was pretty shocking, to tell you the truth, Chris. And, um, you know, as as the layers started to peel away, you got a, a better idea of what, you know, what was going on. Um, you know, it's 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 kind of bittersweet for me. I'm a, I'm a PGA tour guy. I sat on the uh, policy board on the PGA tour, uh, 2000 to 2002, and then twice on the PGA tour champions policy board. So I, you know, I've been in a lot of those, you know, uh, board meetings and sat with the independent directors and the commissioners and the presidents. And, you know, I know what goes on in those meetings, but to, uh, to find it out without anybody else knowing I was, you know, I was a little taken away, honestly, um, as the layers started to, you know, peel away, you got a better idea of what was going on and, you know, a little bit more understanding on why they didn't include any of the player directors or the other independent directors, uh, other than Jimmy Dunn and Ed Hurley, uh, along with, uh, Jay Monahan. So I, I kind of get that part. And as things are starting to go along even, uh, uh, further, uh, there, Chris, we're, starting to get an understanding on uh, why the tour did it, um, what what's in it for the PIF, and that's just a, a basically a, a seat in the room. Um, it, it sounds like not a whole lot more than that. And uh, Yasser was going to have a seat, you know, in, you know, in that room um, with the independent directors and sitting on the board. So I, I kind of understand those things now, but 
you know, it's still very early. I think, you know, listening to a lot of that yesterday um, as much as I could, uh, it's it, it basically what they entered into was an agreement to get to an agreement. <laughs> um, <laughs> but with all the uh, with, with all the litigation um, being prejudiced and, and um, put aside that that cannot come back. Uh, which I think is a good thing is the tour was bleeding money in uh, legal fees um, and, you know, the general fund and, and uh, the, their reserves were starting to uh, dwindle away a little bit. Um, they can't have that, but they still have the power from what I understand uh, of the you know ruling body of the PGA tour and its entities um, and whether live golf is going to be a part of that entity uh, and does Jay or whoever is going to be the commissioner um, have uh, control over that as well? So, you know, that, that's remained to be seen. I guess there's been uh, some some talk, some suggestions made by uh, the PIF on what they want in this agreement. And the tour has shot them down. So they're, they're, they're holding they're, they're holding steady uh, on a, a number of issues um, and it, they're. They're in it to benefit the players. They're in it to benefit the sponsors, and they're in it to benefit uh, the, the the fan uh, experience at the uh, at, at the PJ Tour event. So we're 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 early early in in this right now. So we'll, we'll have to wait and see. And John, for people that have been talking about whether the live players are going to have an opportunity to come back to the PJ Tour, they're going to have to be suspended? Are they going to have to pay a fine and all that sort of thing and, and their way back to the PGA Tour? I mean, my question is more about, is there a way back for Jay Monahan? I know he's supposed to return from his medical leave next Monday, right. but I just don't see a way that the players, the fans, the sponsors, the 9-11 families who he said he stood with, can, he, can anybody ever trust Jay Monahan to be a leader out on the PGA Tour anymore? Is there is that possible? That's a great question, Chris. And I asked myself that in, in amongst our conversations with uh, everybody that I work with and other players. And, um, you know, that is the question. Uh, I like Jay. I've known Jay a long, long time. And uh, he's a he's a good man. He got caught in the middle of something. I think it was a little bit uh, just, a you know, a little bit out of his realm, uh, perhaps. And uh, I, I'm not sure he can regain the trust of uh, the player directors. Uh, I'm not sure he can gain the trust of the, the player as a body. Uh, those player directors were um, voted in by their constituents to represent them as a, as a, as a body, as a whole. Um, and to gain that trust back, I'm not sure that he can, Chris, quite honestly. I think um, maybe he's positioning you know, to step aside. I'm not sure who they have in the pipeline. <laughs> Again, quite honestly, I'm not sure, you know, who, who can, you know, run that ship you know, right away. Uh, so uh, I, you know, I, I would not be surprised if he did step down fairly soon, maybe coming back to, you know, maybe try to right the ship a little bit, maybe try to gain some trust back, but I don't, I don't really see that happening. You mentioned the pipeline. Jay isn't a player like some of the previous commissioners. I go back to Dean Beeman, a guy mm -hmm. who really knew what, what it was like to play out on the PGA Tour because he was a player. If they're going to start looking at replacing Monaghan, 
Do they really need to look at somebody who is a mix of a guy that was out on tour for several years, but also may have some business acumen as well? Is that is it better to have somebody that's leading the CEO of the PGA Tour who actually knew what it was like to be a player? Uh, perhaps, yeah. I mean, there's been some names thrown around, and um, yeah, I, I would like to see that. Honestly, uh, of course, you're going to have to have great business minds and and uh, people around that person because they're not going to know everything. But certainly, uh, as far as uh, communicating with with sponsors, uh, communicating with the players, uh, communicating with business people. That's, that's what players do. Uh, not only do they play great golf, obviously, but you know, that's part of being a professional golfer is just that is to understand what is going on uh, with the, with the tournaments, with the organizations, with the sponsors, with the fans, also with the charitable organizations that these, uh, these great events um, are, are making money for. So that's part of being a professional golfer. Uh, obviously your first, your first job is providing for your family and playing the best golf that you can, but there are a number of uh, players out there that could um, probably fit into that role uh, as long as they have some other, you know, like-minded people around them uh, that have that experience as far as in, in a courtroom or in a, in a, you know, sitting in more boardrooms. Um, if you have uh, a team assembled uh, like that, I think that, uh, you know, a, a player could could step into the role. It's not easy. I'm not saying it's going to be easy, but uh, there, there's some names out there that I think that would be very good. Who Do you mind sharing a couple of examples? I don't want to put you well, on I the know. spot. No, <laughs> uh, Joe Ogilvy has been, um, his name has been thrown around a, a, a number of times and, Joe's a, a dookie. <laughs> he's a tournament winner on on uh, on tour. He's a businessman. He's a he's a you know economics guy. Uh, you know, super super smart. Peter Jacobson obviously can he can juggle a lot of balls <laughs> in the air um, as, as great as he is. Um, so I mean, there's there are names out there. Um, I'm I'm sure I'm missing some others that would be uh, you know that have that sense that could step into that role. But uh, those two have been. Uh, uh, names that have made lists uh, in the past. Uh, so you, you could probably start there. Yeah. And you're not the first person to tell me Joe Ogilvy, by the way. So I know there's a lot yeah. of respect out there for Joe. <laughs> yeah. Hey, you've mentioned sponsors. And when I start to look at the elevated events and how much money in the purses and how much that has grown and gone up over the years, I know Rory talked earlier this year about some players, not him, but some players may start looking at skipping a major because the elevated events have a higher purse than some of the majors do. Is that where the PIF needs to come in? Because if the PGA Tour is going to continue with these $20 million purses, and we've seen AT&T back out of the Byron Nelson to focus on the Pro-Am because of how much it's costing them, I have to imagine other sponsors are starting to choke a little bit on the price tag to sponsor a PGA Tour event. Is that where the PGA Tour is going to need the PIF to step in in order to keep the purses up at this level? Boy, Chris, that's a slippery slope once you start going um, <clears throat> you know, in that direction. And that, that was a forced hand of the PGA Tour of what Liv and the PIF uh, kind of forced on them. Um, you know, Jay had and, and the board, they, they had to figure something out. So they reacted. They didn't 
they weren't proactive in that. They were reactive in uh, what the purse structure was going to be. And the, the first, you know, the, the first dominoes really, you know, to, to light up their eyes were those sponsors that had to come up with that extra money, um, you know, to take their events from, you know, 10 million to 20 million and the elevated events, you know, around the major championships. Um, you know, quite honestly, you know, these, these professional golfers are professionals. Their names are on their bag. Uh, and that's what they do. So, um, but you can see kind of the wear and tear um, of some of those players uh, with, you know, with these elevated events and, um, you know, the requirements in- involved uh, of those players. So, um, you know, when, when the sponsors have to come up with more money, that's a little bit less than their charitable donation pocket and their foundations. And it's a little, it's a bit of a trickle down. And I've, I would not blame any sponsors for kind of saying, whoa, I'm pumping the brakes here. I'm not sure, you know, especially if my CEO and, you know, my chairman of the board are not great golf fans, how am I going to present, you know, an increase um, to sponsor these events? You know, are we getting our money's worth? We're not, maybe we're not getting the players that we want to have come play. Uh, that the tour had said that you know, would come play, um, so that you got to take a lot of that in consideration, and you're starting to see some sponsors kind of back out. Like I said, AT and T is no longer the, the longtime sponsor of the Byron Nelson. Um, they're focusing on Pebble Beach. Uh, I can understand that. You want to go to the well twice? Well, no, not not with us. You're not going. To, you're not going to dip into our pockets twice. So I, I, I kind of understand that, and. PGA Tour is going to have to be very, very careful on, um, you know, who, who, who they're bringing in as sponsors. And the sponsors are also going to be very, very careful on how they spend that money. Yeah, to your point, John, you, you mentioned a slippery slope. I have to imagine if they're going to ask the PIF to step up and fill the gap on some of these sponsorships. I mean, as we all know, ye who has the money makes the rules. <laughs> right. right. So if you're sure. going to start asking me for a bunch of, you know, millions and millions of dollars to prop these, elevated events up well guess what i'm going to want a little more influence than what we have talked about so far in this sort of uh, uh, structure for what Mm -hmm. this partnership or whatever is going to be i think that's where it starts to get really slippery the more you're going to ask the paf to do the more yes or our mind is going to want to have a say in how things get done no question about that chris that's exactly right and uh, they have to be very very careful on uh, how they're going to approach these sponsors and um, you know, these great events, you got to remember too, that they're, they're, these are community events. You know, these, these are the, the Lexingtons, you know, these are, um, you know, some of the, you know, these wonderful, wonderful events, uh, that, uh, you know, sometimes, I mean, you start hurting their bottom line. That's when you start hurting their foundations and their charities. And, and that, that's, that's rough. I was in Moline, uh, last week for the John Deere classic, an incredible community event. Um, and you could just tell that, I mean, yeah, they've got to come up with a lot of money and that just hurts their bottom line. And, you know, when they're, when they're contributing millions of dollars a year to those communities, if that event's not around anymore, who gets hurt? Those charities and those foundations are the ones that right. get hurt, not the players. And, um, you know, certainly not the tour, but, uh, the communities get hurt and they have to really, really understand on, uh, you know, who, who, you know, who, who is uh, benefiting and who is not benefiting from these purse increases 
and uh, these budget increases. I mentioned earlier about suspending the live players or finding them in order to get back onto the PGA Tour. And, and John, I just don't see how the tour can do either one of those things. For, for doing what? For doing the exact same thing the tour just did, which is taking the PIF's money? And I don't understand how they can look at the live players and look them in the eye and say, look, you got to pay this fine or you got to be suspended for doing the exact same thing that we're about to do. Yeah, that's again, you were talking about a, a big, a, a gray area and a slippery slope on, you know, number one, do, do some of the live players really want to come back? <laughs> They're playing a pretty nice schedule. They're making a, a you know, a, a lot, a lot of money. Um, and, do they actually want to come back and then have to play X number of events? You know, they get their major championships. Uh, so that's not going away. So they play their 14, they play their four majors, bam, they're at 18 events. They're making, you know, a lot of money. Um, do they want to come back? Is there an avenue for them to come get back? Well, maybe there's a couple that would like to come back. They would probably have to you know, serve a suspension. I don't know how they were going to do it, honestly. Um so I'm, I'm, I'm not sure where that is, you know, in their structure, but um, it's going to be interesting on, on how, is there a pathway back to the PGA tour if they want to come back to the PGA tour um, because they get their four majors and their own events. So um, boy, this is uh, <laughs> talk about a lot of layers. This is, this is an onion, man. It's got <laughs> hundreds and hundreds of layers to right. peel off before we're at any resolution at all. Could you see where the Live Tour and the DP World Tour could merge? So, you know, everybody has talked about along the way, you know, why why go over to Live? And there was that idea of, well, we're going to grow the game, quote unquote. Could you see the DP World Tour and the Live Tour becoming a thing? And now you're playing most of your tournaments, maybe a handful over here in the U.S., but the majority of them internationally. And that's how you could you know really say, hey, we're growing the game of golf and we're growing it around the world and do it that way. That, that's a possibility, and I've, I've thought about that. I know the DP uh, World Tour uh, kind of you know, co-aligned with the PGA Tour or vice versa. Uh, I think that was to kind of lock up uh, you know, the DP World Tour players and you know, have them you know, have an avenue into the PGA Tour, which I don't think really sat well with the DP World Tour as a feeder tour to the PGA Tour. I'm, I mean, I'm, if I was Keith Pelly, I, I probably would have blinked a couple times on that one, but that's kind of the way that they they've done it and structured it. Now, if they're all going to be partners, perhaps that is a way, you know, to, to, to kind of marry the tours. Um, so, you know, I, I, I thought that, you know, I thought that Jay should have taken a meeting early on in the early stages and see how we could work this out. Uh, I know that there are fall events Maybe the fall events, the DP World Tour and Live could maybe put together some type of a schedule. Um, so those communities in the, in the fall on the PG Tour, they don't fall by the wayside. So I think that there's there's ways that uh, it is a there possibility for you know all these tours to kind of coexist. Don, let's switch gears a little bit. And um, you've competed out on the Champions Tour for many years. How in awe are you of Bernhard Langer? I mean, the guy's <laughs> nearly 66 years of age. He just broke the all-time wins record out on the Champions Tour, and he did it in the best way you, you know, possibly could do it by right. winning the U.S. Senior Open. To yeah. me, the guy's unbelievable. 
It's amazing, you know, the longevity of Bernhard. Um, you know, huge respect for the man. He still has that passion to not only to compete. I don't think anybody loses the passion to compete. It's, you know, how you go about your business, the preparation that it takes, um, the physical training that it takes, the sacrifice that you sacrifices that you still have to make uh, to be at the top of, of your game. And do it now for you know over fifty years. Um, he turned pro when he was like seventeen years old. So he's been, you know, training and sacrificing and living this for you know over fifty years. Uh, I did it for forty four, and I promise you, the last couple of years were not that great. <laughs> and uh, it uh, you know it 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 takes a lot, um, but he has a passion for it. He loves it, uh, and it, it shows. And you know what that meant to him. Uh, so just, you know, being around him for the, you know, he wasn't out on the PGA tour a lot. Uh, when he was, he was always competitive, but you know, he's a, a couple months older than, than I am. So he started his PGA tour champions career around the same time that I did. And I know one thing that, uh, when I turned 50, my first week, uh, was in, in Houston, um, at the admin staff, you know, now the insperity, and uh, I shot six under par for three rounds. I thought, okay, that's not, that's not horrible. I got beat by 19 shots. Wow. And Bernhard Linger beat me by 19 shots. And I said, man, I got, I need to either, I need to get a lot better if I'm going to compete out here. Um, so, you know, I knew right then and there that uh, PJ tour champions was no joke. These guys have come to play and for Bernhard to do it, you know, during the eras that he did, you know, for the last 16, 17 years uh, on the PJ tour champions, he's beaten 50 year olds and he's beaten 50 year olds that have won a lot of golf tournaments. And he's beaten other hall of famers and these guys don't lose their skills, you know, you know, rapidly. Like a lot of people think these guys are still very, very good players. Uh, and he's still doing it. I, it. Huge respect for Bernhard. The guy whose record he broke was Hale Irwin. And when you first got your PGA tour win at the 1981 Bing Crosby pro-am, the it's last a- player you eliminated in that five-man playoff with Hale. And in defeat, Hale said of you, John is a special young man. He deserved to win. He is one of the best new young players on tour. And coming from Hale, following your victory, that had to mean a lot. Yeah, I never forgot that, uh, honestly. And uh, Hale's one tough competitor, I can promise you that. Uh, Sometimes he wasn't, uh, you know, the most likable guy to play with, but you certainly respected him. And and I, I remembered that. Um, you know, to this day and what he said about me. And um, I, I've always appreciated that. And Hale and I have always gotten along wonderfully. And, you know, again, huge respect. You know, I played football. Of course, he played football at a higher, much higher level than I did. But I understand that mentality and what he took into the game. So I've always tried to, you know, maybe not emulate Hale Irwin because we played very similarly. Um, but we had that kind of football uh, mentality of, you know, competing and, and, uh, you know, a little bit of a, aggressiveness in, in, in the, in the bodies that we had and how we played the game. So, um, I, I've always admired and respected Hale you know, from that day. Um, you know, my first win in 1981. So it was, uh, that was a special win and, uh, to, to beat him and then to, to remain friends and, and, uh, and the respect that we've had for each other, you know, since then, that was, wow. 
talk about years ago. That's that's 43 years ago. So, um, yeah. So, you know, for him to then come out on the PGA Tour champions and dominate like he did, you know, in an era where, you know, Gil Morgan was winning a lot of golf tournaments and Bruce Fleischer was winning a lot of golf tournaments. And, you know, there, you know, that was another great era of, uh, of competition. So um, hats off to both the you know, Hale and, and Bernhardt for, you know, all those wins and staying competitive into their sixties. I mean, that's not easy to do. John, back in December, you posted a picture of some of the putters you used at different times <laughs> and levels of your career. And looking at putters today, how in the world did you ever <laughs> use a bull's eye putter? I mean, that thing had a sweet spot the size of a dime. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I was looking at those putters again the other day, and I only posted those just to let everybody know on what you know, you could have won golf tournaments with these. And I was just, you know, throwing them out there. You know, I had one of the original Scott Camerons. Uh, Scotty gave me one on the, on the practice putting green at the PGA in 1994 at Southern Hills. And I immediately put it in the bag and, and played, you know, quite well with that putter. You know, that was before he was with a Kushner or Titleist or, or anything. And, and that bullseye putter that I had, that was before a Kushner too. That was just an original John Ruder Jr. Uh, from the early sixties. I, I got at Firestone Country Club, um, when I was a child, uh, you know, in the early sixties. So I just, I, I, I felt proud of those. I had found them. They were, they were in storage. Um, and I was just curious on what people thought of those. So it was, uh, I, I've got them in the house and, uh, we have them on a little display of a little putter rack that I have. And, and uh, it's quite fun to, you know, pick one up and put a golf ball down and go, Whoa. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, to, to, to try to hit a, <laughs> try to hit a putt, you know, in the, in the center of the face, it's like going back to those old, old drivers and having to put the golf ball in the middle of the face to have it be effective at all. So, um, it's, uh, it, it, that was, that was quite fun. I got a lot of fun comments, uh, from various collectors and various, uh, people that know old bullseyes and old, know old Cameron. So it was uh, quite a fun conversation. Speaking of old persimmon drivers and old equipment, one of the things, as you know, back in the fall, it used to be silly season, right? Skins games and things of that nature. One right. of the things that I would love for the PGA tour to do is to have an event where you where the guys now have to play all that old equipment. For, <laughs> throwback. <laughs> yeah, have a throwback game, right? How yeah. great would it be to see those guys out there with persimmon woods and balada balls and a bullseye, uh, bullseye putter oh, yeah. and all of those sorts of things? I think that would be fantastic. It'd be, it'd be hysterical. I mean, you could do it at, say, Harbortown or Colonial or uh, somewhere where, you know, you have to put the ball in play um, and you have to hit that little heel cut <laughs> that little squeezy heel <laughs> spinny cut out there that kind of higher on the toe draw um, where you actually had to maneuver it around the club face to actually have a chance to play some of these great golf courses. So um, I think that's a great idea. 1992, you got three of your 11 PGA Tour wins. You had eight top tens in 21 events that you played that year. You turned pro later in the year back in 1979. So 13 years later, you're at the top of the game. How much of that was due to something different you did with your game that year? And how much was perseverance and as Hal Sutton likes to say, digging it out of the dirt and grinding? Yeah, that's that's exactly what I did. It was more digging it out of the dirt. It was, it was being more comfortable on 
who I was and who I was as a, as a player. Um, I missed a lot of the year in 1989 uh, with a with a hand injury and, and surgery. Um, when I came back in 90, I was, you know, talk about digging it out of the dirt. Uh, I, I was really starting from scratch. And that's when Ken Venturi and I went right to work after I was able to, you know, start digging it out of the dirt. Um, because I, I, I had, um, you know, great motivation from my wife, Jan, and, and, and the family. The kids were young. Um, and and I, I didn't know um, really what else I was going to do. So I had to get better at what I was doing. Uh, there were, you know, better and better players. Uh, in, in 90, I had a really nice comeback year. I didn't win. 91 was kind of the same. Uh, but in 92, something clicked that winter. And uh, I, I started to not think about, you know, golf swing so much that I uh, was really out playing golf. And right from the get-go uh, in, in 92, it, it start, things started to click. And, you know, I, I kind of, rest of the way through the 90s, it, it kind of happened that way. So I, I, I had a really nice run from, you know, 90 through 99, 2000, 2001. Um, that's where I kind of made my hay. But 92, I, I just felt comfortable. I felt like I was one of the better players on, on tour. Um, and it, it showed. I mean, I had, you know, three wins. I had three seconds. Two of those were in majors. Uh, one of them I thought I should have won there at the Open Championship at Muirfield. Uh, I had another uh, number of other top tens. Uh, and then to cap it off with a win in the fall at, at, at Vegas in my dad's event. So that that just um, it kind of cemented me. It, 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 it made me proud of, you know, what I was doing. Um, I had great support from my family. I had great support from my wife, Jan. Um, who who was an absolute rock and allowed me to to uh, pursue that and she knew how good I could be I I maybe I didn't know how good I could be for a number of years but you know once 90 came along and I came back in 91 I kind of solidified that with some more good good uh, events in 92 it just kind of all came together and uh, had a nice little run after that you mentioned Ken Venturi and Ken used to do a segment when he was broadcasting tournaments called Stroke Savers. <laughs> Always remembered and used a tip to this day that he talked about how to get out of a fairway bunker. Yeah. But what's a what's a quick tip or a stroke saver that he shared with you that we can pass along here to our listeners? Oh, it was I, how many hours do we have? I mean, he has a whole book on stroke savers that I, you know, that he he published, and I ha- I have that book sitting in my library. Um, God, there's so many, Chris. Uh, I think, you know, the, the one out of the fairway bunker, I know he, he wanted you to swing mostly with your arms and upper body and keep your right. lower body nice and still. Um, you know, hands in a cast when you're, uh, when you're pitching the golf ball, you know, just, it, it's all arms and, and no, no real hands can really help, uh, keep the, keep the club nice and low and level uh, so you don't dig into the ground. So, you know, hands in the cast on a takeaway. He would always tell me to show me the toe, John, show me the toe of the club on my backswing. And which meant um, he wanted to see the toe. You know, he wanted to see like a little red dot on the toe of the club. He didn't want to see it shut on the backswing. So whenever we were working, he would say, flash me the toe, flash me the toe. And so I would show him the toe. And sure enough, that would get my swing right on plane again. So it, uh, 
Gosh, so many, uh, so many. You know, a lot of those stroke savers he did on, I would say, 99.9% of those were one take. That he wow. would just get in there, he would you know, talk to the camera, he'd go about his business, hit, you know, hit the shot, and he'd look back at the camera and he'd go, that's how you do it. <laughs> <laughs> he was just the best at that. John, just a couple more before I let you go. You mentioned family a moment ago. Your son Jason played his college golf at Pepperdine, then played professionally for a while, then went back to school to Penn State to get his turf management degree. How's Jason doing? Yeah, he's doing great, uh, Chris. Thanks for asking. Yeah, we're really proud of this kid. Um, obviously, he, you know, he tried to to you know follow in dad's footsteps, and I, I think maybe if he'd have had my brain and cons- competitive competitiveness. Uh, he might have had a real good chance because he's super good. He's a wonderful golfer, wonderful player, uh, shows, you know, that passion for the game. Um, and he did not want to, you know, to step away. Um, he, he, he grew that passion for the game into a passion for being outside and, um, you know, being part of the crew and, you know, you know setting the holes, setting the tees, um, you know, getting the golf course prepped to go play. Uh, he's in a very unique position, Chris, where there's very, very few uh, in that business, in that industry with the you know, you know, golf course superintendents um, that played at a high level that also has that passion for setting up golf courses and, and growing grass and running crews. And um, when he graduated a couple of years ago from Penn State, we, were, we couldn't have been more proud of the, the young man because um, he he did step away playing competitively, but he stepped right into the industry and he's doing wonderful right now. He's down in Austin, Texas at a discovery land property called Driftwood Golf um, and Ranch. And he is the second assistant to Eric Poles, who was also a Penn State graduate who has, you know, been and built golf courses for discovery land, you know, throughout the country. Um, So he's learning from one of the best at a place that he helped open. and where he goes from there, we, we, don't, uh, we don't know, but he's loving what he's doing. He's still playing golf at a very, very high level. He got his amateur status back, so he's going to try to you know, play in some uh, mid-ams and some Texas State ams and you know, maybe play in the mid-am. And, you know, he still likes to be competitive, but um, he loves what he's doing. He's up early in the morning. He's helping run a crew on the weekend. Um, he's getting a wonderful golf course prepared. He loves going out and talking to uh, the other members on, you know, you know, how they present the golf course. Um, and uh, he's really having a time of his life. John, one more before I let you go. And as you know, I'm down here in Atlanta in the heart of Georgia Bulldog country. I thought your <laughs> Buckeyes were going to get them last year in the playoffs. But how do they you feel about scared. this year's team? Yeah. How do you feel they about have- this year's team? They got a shot? Yeah, for for a team that was a, a huge underdog, um, they had those Bulldogs a little bit nervous, especially when they called that timeout because that first kick was good. <laughs> um, I I'm pretty pretty confident uh, this year. They uh, Kyle McCord or Devin Brown will step in at quarterback. It's probably going to be, be McCord, uh, who was uh, Marvin Harrison's uh, quarterback in high school, um, and he was actually. Gatorade National Player of the Year. So this kid comes with a lot of pedigree. He's been in the system now for for three years, and uh, I don't really see a you know a, a ton of drop off uh, there. I mean, obviously CJ, CJ Stroud was incredible. Um, they need to stay healthy. They did not. They were not healthy last year. They didn't have their 
uh, running backs one, two, and three in that uh, semifinal game. So um, they get uh, Henderson, they get Williams. Uh, you know, the kid um, Hayden out of Tennessee will now be a sophomore. Uh, obviously, their their wide receiver room is maybe better than a lot of NFL teams, quite honestly. Um, depends on how the defense comes along, if they can shore up the defense a little bit, um, get that offensive line. I know there's some new names in there, but they're all five-star kids. So, you know, they play the way that they're supposed to play. I, 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 give, them, I give them a pretty good run. They have to beat the team up north. Coach Ryan Day, whatever you do, beat the team up north. First and foremost, <laughs> losing two in a row to them. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, that's got to hurt. Keeps gotta me hurt. up at night. <laughs> <laughs> it does. Uh, John, before I let you go, remind our listeners how they can listen to you and Craig and then stay up to date with all the great things you're doing, whether it's uh, following you online or it's on social media. Yeah, that's great, Chris. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm, uh, I'm a, a guest on uh, Craig Can's show. It's called Connected. It's on Monday nights from uh, from uh, six to eight o'clock on uh, Sirius XM PGA Tour Radio Channel ninety two, I believe. Um, you can you can hear us there. He's got some always some great guests. He reconnects with some some names that, from the past. Uh, we have a lot of fun on that show. Uh, also, I'm still doing a lot of uh, analyst work and. Uh, walking, uh, a walking analyst for Golf Channel, uh, a little bit for the uh, PGA Tour champions as well. And also I do all the college uh, color analysts for the NCAA uh, college events that are also televised on Golf Channel. So um, I might be retired from competitive golf. I still play member guests, member members, pro members, stuff like that. But uh, it keeps my brain going. It keeps me um uh, keeps me entertained. It keeps me in the game. Um, you can also follow me on, uh, uh, John cook golf on, uh, Instagram and also John cook OSU where that comes from. I don't know <laughs> on, on Twitter as well. <laughs> and we only talk golf. I mean, it, it, I don't do a whole lot other than if I'm asked a question uh, about the game or about the telecast or about what I saw. Um, I stay, I steer away from going down rabbit holes with people. So, um, but I, I certainly love to talk the game and still love the game. I'm, I'm, I'm glad I'm still involved. John, it's always a huge thrill to get to spend some time with you. You're fantastic, my friend. I can't thank you enough for all you've meant to me and to this show and for the times that you have been on. This is a, the sixth time I've got to have you as part of the show. And each time it's just been wonderful. I can't thank you enough for being generous with your time and, and coming back and joining me again tonight. My pleasure always, Chris. Anytime, just give me a ring. I appreciate it. John, take care, my friend. All the best to you and your family. We'll catch up soon. Sounds good, Chris. Thanks. See you, John. That is the great John Cook, folks. And at John Cook Golf on Twitter, at John Cook OSU on Instagram, just one of the fantastic players that we've seen on the PGA Tour over the last 40 years and a great amateur player before that. And a guy who's come to mean a great deal to me here on this show, like I mentioned. Uh, prior in the uh, intro and earlier in the show, a guy that has meant so much to me as an unknown mentor. I listened to John, watched John when he is broadcasting golf tournaments, and again, listened to he and Craig Can on their show, Connected, Monday nights from 6 to 8 p.m. Eastern Time on Sirius XM, PGA Tour Radio Channel 92. But John is just a fantastic player and a wonderful guy and has great stories. 
And um, like I say, someone who's become very, very important to me. And I can't thank him enough for taking time out of his busy schedule to come back and be a part of the show. Like I say, now six times, and I'm already looking forward to number seven. Hopefully, that's very, very soon.